I want to give you a top 10 uh, parent quotes to kids. So uh, as you think about these quotes, think about uh, as a parent the things that you say to your kids that likely your parents said to you. So top 10 parent quotes to their kids. This will hurt me more than it hurts you. Sure it will. You're going to poke your eye out with that thing. I think that one's a mom one. Um, I'm your mother. I'm not your friend. You don't have to like me at all. Anybody said that? Amen to that. Um, If a friend told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Life's not fair. No one said it was easy. Money doesn't grow on trees, you know. Eat all of your dinner. There are starving children in Africa who would love to have that meal. That's true. Actually, Feed, Teach, Hope, you can support kids. See, you like the plug? You can support kids. You can support the Sandos. Um, We know that firsthand Um, with our own son. I'm going to count to three. You know, I'm going to count to three is more about parents coming down from where they're at than it is kids. I'm going to count to three. But my personal favorite is this. Because I told you so. Do what I'm asking you to do because I told you so. I know none of you have ever used that. Usually you use that when you can't think of any other reason to give your kids. But think about because I told you so. As a kid, you hated it. As a parent, you use it. But the reality is it often leaves us wanting. It often leaves us wanting an explanation for more. Like, why is my boss firing me and saying we're moving in a different direction? I want more of an explanation. Why is it that my house isn't selling yet? I don't want to hear the explanations you're giving because they're non-answers. That's the way I feel right now about my house in Cyprus. Please sell. What about when you're working really hard um, for a client to, um, in a bid on, on something for a client and they say, we're going in a different direction. See, it's not just for kids. Adults don't like that answer either. I don't like that answer. Now let me get a little bit more personal. What about when you don't get the answer that you really want from the Lord? when something bad happens in your life and there's no explanation and you don't even tangibly see the reasons yet. We often don't like that answer. In the book of Titus, Paul has spent much of the first two chapters of of the book of Titus um, explaining to the people a lot of instruction, a lot of imperative instructions. If you think about it, he said, look, Titus, you need to appoint elders. That's a command. And then he says to the false teachers, Um, To Titus, he says, you need to silence the false teachers that they may be sound in faith, that they might come back. And then he says to older men and women, hey, you need to teach younger men and women. And to the younger, he says, you need to learn from the older. And to the bondservant who has a boss, hey, you need to submit to authority. You need to follow and you need to be respectful. So he's given a lot of commands. What if Paul at the end of those commands just said, because I told you so, Cretans? Does that suffice? He doesn't really do that. Look at the text, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I love Paul's answer. He's given a lot of commands to uh, the Cretans in this church, and he's given a lot of commands, but, but he doesn't land in that place. He doesn't land because I told you so, even though he could, right? He's the apostle Paul. He has apostolic authority to say that. It's not just even that. It's not just even because I told you so, or it's the right thing to do, but I want to show you this morning what motivates obedience. What motivates our obedience as well, 2,000 years later. Look at the text. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. You're going to see the motivation to grow in godliness. 
Let me read it. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, or for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself gave us for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what motivates? The grace of God is our motivator. It is our chief motivator. It is the thing that God has given us in Jesus It's the thing that motivates us to follow the Lord. What is grace? Grace is God providing what we can't provide for ourselves. It's the sovereign favor of God that he gives us. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's his undeserved favor. You see, grace motivates and stirs us to be like Christ. Isn't that a greater motivator than because I told you so or it's the right thing to do in in the life that you live for Christ? Because of the grace of God, because of what Christ has done, I think I see four things in this passage that grace does. Four things this morning that grace does. And you can follow along on your handout. You can write these down on your handout if you want to. Uh, The first thing I see in this passage that grace does is that grace saves and transforms us. I want you to look at verse 11. Grace saves and transforms us. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God, His unmerited favor has appeared. The word appeared there in the text, if you look at it, it's the word we get for an epiphany, something that breaks out when you're not expecting it. We use that term in our world uh, for like an invention or a thought that we have that changes the course of the way that we think. The grace of God has appeared. It's appeared out of nowhere, out of the darkness, and it's brought light. And what has it brought? It's brought salvation. Think about the idea that, that the grace of God is Jesus. That's what it is. The grace of God is Jesus. John chapter 1, what does John 1 say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, verse 14. And we beheld His glory, glory from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. See, grace broke through in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. He is the epiphany of all epiphanies that you could ever have, past, present, future. This is who Jesus is. And what did he do? For the grace of God has appeared, that's speaking of his first coming, and really the totality of what he's done, bringing, what did he bring? He brought salvation. What's salvation? Salvation, we sang about it, is rescue from sin. It's deliverance from sin. And you know what salvation does? We're delivered in really four ways, maybe more, but four for sure. You're delivered from the penalty of your sin. When you came to know Jesus Christ, you were delivered from the penalty of your sin. The Bible says that the, that the wages of sin is death. There's a weight on you without Christ that, that Jesus breaks. That's what salvation does. It brings deliverance and rescue for the penalty of sin that rests on you. So the penalty of sin, it also breaks the power of sin in your life. Before you knew Christ, the Bible would say you didn't have any power. You didn't have any power to do good. You didn't have any power to know God. You know the hymn that we sing? My chains came off, I've been set free, I came forth and followed thee. The power of sin is broken at the cross. That's what Jesus brought. He brought 
deliverance from the power of sin. Now, we still deal with the presence of sin in our life, but he broke the power of sin. He paid for the penalty of sin. And guess what? One day, we will be without the presence of sin in glory. Not only that, sin is no longer possessing us, and I don't mean like in a weird way, but this text is going to tell us in verse 14 that Christ has redeemed us and made us a people for what? His own possession. So no longer are we in this family, this kingdom of the evil one, but we've been brought into his family. So the penalty and the power and the presence and the possession of sin is gone. That's what salvation is. Amen? That's glorious. That's the best news. That's the best thing you could ever hear. That is the epiphany of all epiphanies, that Jesus is the grace, the grace of God. The grace of God, the glory of God is found in the person of Jesus. That's what this text is teaching us. So God saves us and transforms us in this way. But to what end? It says in, in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing the salvation for all, for all people. Does that mean that all people are saved? It doesn't mean that all people are saved. Nobody would affirm that who believes in the Christian message. But it certainly means that salvation has come to all kinds of people. <coughs> Excuse me. Think, think here, the Cretans. What has been said about the Cretans that Paul is writing to Timoth, Titus about? What do we know about them? From their own mouths, they are what? They are evil, they are gluttonous, they are liars. And so what he's saying to these people sitting in these pews is <coughs> the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation even to the Cretans, even to the evil, lying gluttonous, greedy people of Crete. If you're sitting in the pew and you hear that message that was spoken through Titus from Paul, you're thinking, even the grace of God can come to me? That's an amazing thought. Well, <coughs> the idea of salvation for all people is the idea that it comes to all kinds of people and, and the grace of God is surely sufficient for all people. It's effective for those who believe. This is what we believe in Scripture. But the point is this. The penalty and the power of sin is broken. So what that means in your life and in my life is it transforms us. <coughs> Excuse me. We're no longer who we were. We're no longer who we were, whether we feel like it or not. I want you to think about times where you've sinned against God over and over and over. And you don't feel like grace is transforming you or has transformed you. And you know what Satan wants to do in those moments? He wants to convince you that you're not transformed. He wants to convince you that you're nothing. He wants to convince you that you can't change. And yet this truth and this passage and others teaches you that you are transformed. That you are positionally changed. That you are no longer bound to sin. And the power of, <coughs> the power of sin is no longer over you. And so that's the beauty of this text. So that's the point. So let me ask you the question, do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been transformed? If you're a Christian, the Bible say, says that you have been transformed, that you, the chains have come off, that you have been set free. Now the presence of sin is still present until glory, and yet, <coughs> man, are you hurting for me? Sorry, I've got water. I just haven't wanted to bend down and do it. Cold weather. Um, so that's the application. Satan wants you to believe that you have no power over your sin, but you do. 
I want you to, to encourage you this morning that if that's the place that you're in where sin is just whipping you and you think in your mind, honestly, that I can't get over this sin. I can't get over this thing that keeps whipping me day after day. And I keep struggling with day after day. I want to tell you that that's not true. It's not true because the power has been broken and you have the Spirit of God in your life. And, and, and the reality... And the reality is this. John Newton said it this way. He said about the grace of God, I am not the man that I ought to be even. I'm not the man that I ought to be. I'm not even the man that I wish to be. I'm not the man yet that I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man that I used to be. And let me tell you, if you know Jesus, you are not the man or woman that you used to be. Even if there's just a glimmer of change in your life, positionally speaking, you are not the person that you used to be. Do you believe that? See, God's grace saves us and transforms us. Jesus removes the penalty and power of our sins. So grace saves and transforms, but it does something else presently. A lot of that reality that I just spoke about, grace saving and transforming, is what happened when you trusted Christ, in, in a sense, in the past. But what about presently? What does grace do for me presently? Have you ever thought about it that way? What does grace do for me presently? Look at verse 12. Verse 12 will teach us that grace teaches us. It continues to train us and teach us to do what? Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. The idea of training there is like some of you young moms and dads, you have little kids. It's the training, it's the whole picture of what training looks like for a little kid. I mean, training them to take a bath. Isn't that a fun time at night? Um, my chiropractor the other day said, I have, a, I have a year old kid, and for the first time I put some, a long sleeve shirt on him and he couldn't figure it out. So I had to explain to him that we live in Houston and we, we put long sleeve shirts on. And so there's training going on about even putting on a long sleeve shirt. And so think about, though, the training that you're doing with your little one. And think about parents, if you have kids that are teenagers or kind of growing up, there's ongoing training every day. And so the idea of training is a long, long process. And this is what the scriptures say about our walk with Christ day after day, that he's training us more and more by his grace to be, Romans 8, conformed to the image of Christ more and more each day. So when we let grace reign, it can train us. So to do what? Look at verse 12. So this training that takes time and it takes effort that grace is doing in our life is to do to deny ungodliness and to embrace godly, ungodliness and to embrace godliness. To say no, the idea of renouncing is that your will and your volition is saying no to sin and saying yes to God. The Bible says it in other ways. In Ephesians 4, it says to put off and to put on. To put off ungodliness, to put on godliness. This is the scriptures. In what areas? Look at the end of verse 12. The end of verse 12 says, and to live three things, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Self-controlled is an inward thing. You've kind of seen this idea of self-controlled as, as a summary characteristic of an elder, of an older man, as an older woman who is an example. So this is an inward work of God. And upright, it means that outwardly, that people can see that inward work. There's a change in us. 
And then thirdly, it's upward. So inward, outward, upward. Godly lives before the face of God in this present age. Well, grace teaches us. I want to apply this in a couple of ways. Are you, are you, le- are you willing to let grace train you? It takes humility. I want, to, I want to talk about two areas really in this and, and just kind of get closer to the subject in our lives. Um, there are often besetting sins, things that we can't whip in our lives that grace needs to continue to train. <coughs> there are also things like relational pains that we have with one another where we just miss because we're fallen human beings and there's pain there with one another in relationship. And those are hard things to get through. So besetting sins, I just want to say to us this morning, if if there's sin in your life that is just whipping you day after day after day, whether it's lust or whether it's anger, whether it's fear, whatever those things uh, may be, I would point you to a number of places just in a practical way. I would point you to Scripture. I would point you specifically, doctor's orders, twice a day for a week. Read Romans chapter 6. Read Romans chapter 6 and be reminded of what the grace of God has done for you, that your chains have been taken off, that you are transformed, that you are transformed. Read that over and over and over because in your sin, we stop believing who we are. But we need to remember who we are. And then the next week, take Romans 7 and read it twice a day for a week and be reminded that we wage war against our sin. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be waging war against our sin. We also see Paul, who is having to do the same thing. And then read Romans 8 for the third, in the third week, in the next three weeks. Read Romans 8 twice a day, three for a week, and be reminded that the Spirit of God is at work, changing and training you and growing you. I'd also say to you, um, when I think of grace teaching us to obey. I, would, I think of prayer. I think of worship because ultimately whatever it is that we're struggling with is a worship issue because we're putting that in place of God to be satisfied with whatever that is rather than God. And so it's ultimately, it's a worship issue. The Bible says that we need one another in our sin, in our struggles. Hebrews 3, sin is deceitful, so we need one another day by day. Do you have community in the struggle? And there are places in this church that we have set up for you. If there are particular things that you're struggling with, um, the men have what they call a band of brothers, or men who meet to fight sin together. And so I would encourage you to re- find somebody you know. Find somebody that you trust to share with. And I also just endear to you a book. I'll post it on Facebook. But there's a book by Tim Chester called You Can Change. And it's a great book on, if you're in a place where you're saying, man, I can't whip this, Guess what? You can't whip it, by the way. The Spirit of God has to be whipping the sin in you. But this is a great book. It's been a great resource for me. You Can Change by Tim Chester. I'd encourage you to do that. And then I want to just kind of press in a little bit, too, as it relates to application, what that looks like in our lives. I want you to think about people that have hurt you, people that are maybe still hurting you, people that you have relational conflict with, and you know the Lord in time wants to make that right. Here's the thing. I know in my, in my own life, I show myself a lot of grace for the training aspect <laughs> of this deal. Like, hey, I'm still in training. And I tell people that when I wrong them, right? But other people are in training too. There are other Christians who we expect probably more than we expect of ourselves. They're in training too. And so if there are relational conflicts and pains that you're still holding on to, 
in your life, I want you, A, to be reminded that those, they haven't gotten there yet either. And they need grace. And they need forgiveness, just like you do. And so I would encourage you in that. Do you see others as a work in progress when they hurt you? As for leaders, for people's growth and grace, if you're a leader in the church, can you help people grow in grace? It's an important thing. Man, grace takes time to train. But I've got to say this. It does take time to train, but there ought to be some evidence. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says there ought to be some evidence in our lives that that training is happening in our lives. So we don't cheapen grace because we do that. We cheapen grace. There's a story of an old gangster named uh, Mickey Cohen. Ever heard of Mickey Cohen? Uh, He was a gangster in LA. He was kind of uh, Al Capone to Chicago. He was that for LA. And um, he had all kinds of gambling casinos and all kinds of underground things going on. He brought in like half a million dollars um, a day in in like the 40s and, and all these uh, as a gangster, and he was intrigued by Billy Graham, and he, was, he, he liked his style, is, is the way he said it, and so he got a private meeting with Billy Graham. Billy Graham shared the gospel with him, and um, there was rumors that uh, Mickey Cohen uh, became a believer in Christ, or he said he professed faith in Christ, and so that rumor started to swell, and then people that he began to have friendship with who were Christians began to come to Mickey and say, hey, uh, this whole thing doesn't work. Like this whole gangster thing <laughs> doesn't exactly work for the Christian. And he began pointing out things in his life to say this needs to change. And uh, Mickey has this famous quote um, that's attributed to him. And he said, I didn't realize that I had to give up my work. And he said, man, there's Christian football players, there's Christian cowboys, there's Christian politician. Why not a Christian gangster? Well, Mickey, it doesn't really work that way. And grace is meant to change us. Grace is meant to be changing us. So we don't want to cheapen grace. So grace teaches and trains, and it breaks the power and penalty of sin in our life. But notice, this is a past work so far at salvation. It's, it's a present work. Is there anything that grace does in the future? Keep looking at the text. Is there any work that grace does in the future that impacts me today, that helps me today? Look at verse 13. Here's your point. Grace helps us look forward with certainty. Grace helps us look forward with certainty. Look at verse 13. Waiting, the idea of waiting is expectant waiting for our blessed hope. This is the second coming of Christ. That's what he's speaking of. So we've seen the first coming of Christ, and now we see the second coming of Christ. The appearing, same word, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the deity of Christ here, that Jesus is God. And so not only in the first coming, but the second coming. See, grace helps us look forward with certainty. This is what this text is teaching us. 1 Peter, if you've got a Bible with you or if you want to click in your device, flip over to 1 Peter. This was a late ad, so I didn't get it up. Look at 1 Peter. This is the future grace that, that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and also in verse 13. Um, this is the idea of future grace, that we await for it. Look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Skip down to verse 13. So if that's true, if we have an inheritance and it's a living hope today, there's this already not yet reality to this, how should we live? Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that has been, no, is, no, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a future grace that we look forward to when Jesus comes, either when we go to be with Jesus or he comes, because guess what? The presence of sin is still around us, and we still struggle with it, but one day, the presence of sin will be gone, whether we die and are raised or whether he comes back. That's a great promise for today. I've inherited... Me and my brothers have inherited a ranch out in West Texas. Guess what? That's an inheritance that I look forward to, but you know what? I enjoy it today. I go out there and I shoot things. I go out there and I sit on the back deck and look at the hummingbirds and the mountain. I go out there and look at the stars at night, which I can't do here, and enjoy the inheritance that I have both in the future and now. There's an already not yet reality to it. Let me tell you, if you know Christ, your inheritance is secure, and there's a sense in which you're not there yet, but you are. There's an already not yet, that this is a done deal. This is a certain hope. Let me say it a different way. The Astros last night, okay? If I told you that, seriously, if I told you that the Astros are going to win the World Series this year, how does that change the way you feel right now about how bad they just got beat last night at home. See, if you know the future, it affects today. It affects your emotions. It affects your decisions. It affects what you fear, what you trust in. See, this is the future hope that we have. Grace helps us look forward with certainty, with certainty. You know, God has not promised health, wealth, and prosperity. I wish he had. One day in heaven, we are going to have the riches of his grace in heaven, but he hasn't promised that. But there are hard things in this life, that, in a fallen world, that, that, that God throws at us. There are hard things that we go through in this life. And if you think about the Christian church, they were likely going through persecution because of their faith in a culture that had gone awry. In 1 Peter, the same is true. They were going through persecution, so Peter says to them, don't forget the future. Don't forget the hope that is certain. It's a done deal. See, grace helps us look forward with certainty. So whatever's happening, all the junk that's happening in your life right now, you can still look forward with certainty the future grace that he's given to us because of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the grace and the glory of God, and we look forward to that. And so you can live your life today, whether things are going well or not going well, with a certain hope of Christ, that one day that you will be in his presence, and the presence of sin will be gone. And not only that, but look at the end of this verse. He gave, verse 14, you will be his possession, you will be with him. That's a beautiful promise. So grace helps us look forward with certainty. It does something else. It calls us to something else. Look at the, the end here, verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 50, grace calls us to do two things, to serve and to share. But I want to look at verse 14 because this is the essential part of the gospel. See, this is what Jesus has done. 
the reason he's the blessed hope and the reason um, that he is the grace and glory of God is because he has given himself for us at the cross. That's the idea of grace. That God promises us something that we can't do for ourselves. We can't give ourselves up for our own sin. He's given himself up for us. He's died in our place to do what? To redeem us, to buy us out of effectively the slave market. He's pulled us out by his mercy from that, from all lawlessness and to purity for himself. To do what? To purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what's the net result? The net result is, is God's grace transforms us and saves us. God's grace teaches us. God's grace is something we get to look forward to. God's grace calls us to good works. And it calls us, verse 15, to declare and tell people about this grace that we found, that God has found us. So grace calls us to action. You think of Ephesians 2. Many of you know the passage, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, but it's a free gift of God so that no man can boast. So you see faith alone. You see grace alone. You see in Christ alone. For what purpose? You ever read verse 10? For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. What, why are we created? For good works. This is the net result. This is what he calls us to because of his grace. He calls us to good works. He calls us to be people who serve and who share. I had a friend in college from Sweden, and he played on my college golf team with me. And he, if you think about a Swedish guy, he was the blonde, tall Swedish guy, and he didn't know a thing about Christianity at all. And he watched my life because I used to go out and goof off with him and the rest of the team, and then Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me, and he had to process that for the next year. And he was one of the guys that would say, well, you'll be back. You'll be back. This is just a short-term thing. And, but he was perplexed, more so than the other guys, because they were from America, and they understood this Christianity thing, at least the cultural Christianity thing, but he didn't. And I'll never forget sitting at a tournament in Mexico, sitting before our tea time, to play in a golf tournament, a college golf tournament, rough life. And I remember he would just always just, I didn't have to go to him to talk to him about Jesus. He just was perplexed. And so he said, so tell me more. Like, tell me more about the gospel. And I remember unpacking grace to him. This is an unbelieving guy. And he said, if that's true, why are you here? Why are you here? You should be going and doing things, and you should be going and saying and telling, declaring that message to everybody. If that, I don't believe that's true, but if that is true, that's what you ought to be doing. And I had an answer for him, but it wasn't the greatest answer. He was, that's ne- I've never gotten past that to go, what am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? I know what I'm doing here. God's put me here to talk to you. Um, but even an unbeliever got it. He, he understood at least the concept of grace and the grace of God and who Jesus was enough to go, if that's true, that should change everything about your life. And that's true in our lives. Well, how about it, C3? We're created for good works. What's that looking like in your life? We're created to declare the glory and grace of God in our lives. What does that look like? Well, why the call to live godly lives? It's not just because I said so, right? It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's because of the grace of God that Jesus 
is the epiphany of all epiphanies. I hope we never get past the grace of God. I hope I never get past the grace of God, what he, Jesus, has done for me at the cross, and I hope you never get past that either. You might experience the grace, and you might live in that grace, that grace would continue to transform you and me, that would continue to train us, however slow or fast that might be, and that we would, as a people, look forward to the future grace that God has for us. See, grace cultivates godliness in us. I want to I show you just a testimonial video of a guy who I think um, it's a great picture of what grace and mercy does in a person's life. Check it out. Are you home? Have you been found? Do you know Christ? It takes us from despair to joy. Jesus is the very grace and glory of God. Pray that you would consider Christ as David did. Pray that the Spirit would do a work. And if you do know Christ, do you really believe that you are transformed? Because God's Word says you are. God's word says you are. It also says that he will sustain you and walk with you. If you know Christ and you're struggling, we want to be a community in which you can walk with people and experience the grace of God together. Because Jesus is the glory and the grace of God, and we want to be a people who extend that grace and his glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel truth that Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin sin and the power of sin and the possession of sin in one day, even the presence of sin. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are grateful, who live in that grace, not only toward you, but toward the person sitting next to us, that we would walk with people and care for people that we would be a people that are about mission, that want that message to be declared, that want that message to be seen in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.